Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. The title of the message this morning is, and again, like, like I keep telling you guys, I'm so uncreative when it comes to sermon titles. Just boasting about tomorrow, which is what it says in the italicized header on the NIV Bible over this paragraph. So that's as creative as I get with titles. But how many of you recognize what that object is on that first slide there? Did you play with one of those when you were a kid? It's a paper fortune teller, and I spent many, many misspent hours trying to shape and predict my future with one of those. And I think because I picked a number and a color I developed this kind of illusion that I'm helping shape my own future somehow. That it wasn't just dumb luck, but I picked that number and I picked that color. And so therefore, I got to decide, at least in part, who I'm going to marry, what kind of car I'll drive, what city I'll live in. You know, you do how many kids you're going to have. And uh, the only one that came close was that I, I, I was told over and over again by the fortune tellers, I was going to have five kids. I, th- I thought as a child that was preposterous, but I ended up with four, so I'm almost there. But I did not marry the little girl in the apartment downstairs. I don't live in Honolulu, and I definitely don't drive a Corvette. So here, here's the thing. I realized we play those games even as children because there's something about the future that captures the imagination. We feel very powerfully, very passionately about this idea of the future, And as we get older, it dawns on us that we're not limited to wishful thinking when it comes to the future. That somehow if we do the right things, make the right moves, we work hard, we can in fact have a great deal to do with what our future looks like. We begin to realize we have a hand in shaping what our lives will look like down the road and it captivates us. In fact, I would even say for some of us, it obsesses us to think about, to dwell on, to plan, to strategize for those days which have not yet come, believing deep in our hearts that somehow we can, in fact, predict and realize our vision for the future. So I want to do a quick poll. This will apply only to those adults in this room who are 30 years old and older. That's a lot of us, all right? It's a lot of us. I want to ask you, how many of you looking at your life right now, who you're married to, where you live, what you do for a living, how many of you look at your life right now and say, that's exactly what I predicted as I was leaving high school, that this is where I'd be? My life is right on track according to plan. Raise your hand high. Be proud of it. You're the prophet among us. How many of you? Now, those under 30, look around. Look around this room. There's not one single person in this room raising their hand. I predicted it, but I was a little worried. Because in every group, there's at least one anal retentive person who's got their whole life on a spreadsheet. I'm right on track. I'm off by about six days and three hours, but I'll get there. But the truth is, most people, though we plan obsessively, though we dwell on the future, our actual future usually turns out nothing like our original plan. And maybe that's a little comforting because most people I know... at that are 30 and older, hate their jobs. They complain incessantly about what they do for a living and 
where they got to live in all oh, the Chicago winters, our lives don't turn out the way we plan. That doesn't mean we don't like where we've ended up. But there's a certain kind of foolishness in dreaming of a future and actually believing you can make it all come true. And yet, even though our actual experience does not bear up under scrutiny, it doesn't, it doesn't compare well to our original plan. Still, even though we're not where we thought we would be, we still obsess over trying to control that outcome. It's as if we're awake, but not really. Because not a person in this room raised their hand, and yet most of us still operate every day functionally under the illusion that I can know and control what happens tomorrow. Why do we do that? Why do we try so hard to control and predict the future? Now, I thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks because my mind has been just marinating on this text. And uh, I think maybe partly it's because we feel so powerless over the past. You look back, there's nothing you can do. You didn't choose the family you grew up in. You didn't choose the major shaping events that happened that befell your family. You didn't choose what ethnicity you were, what gender you were. There's so much about your past. You look back and go, what, what, are you, what do you want me to do? I have the life I have. I made the choices I made. If I had known better back then, I might have chosen differently. But my past leaves me feeling completely paralyzed because there's nothing I can do about the past. And when you add to it the fact that even today in the present, many of us feel very paralyzed, very powerless. We may not like where we are, but we don't really feel the freedom to change it. Do you know how many middle-aged men I talk to who really think, oh, I made some bad choices. I, I wish I could make a massive career change, but I have mouths to feed. I have mortgages to pay. I have real-life burdens to bear, but in my heart, I wish so badly that I could just pull the cord and just get off this crazy train and do something else with my life before it's over. I think because we feel so helpless about the past and so powerless in the present, we seize on the future and our hearts need, it requires this idea that at least tomorrow, which hasn't happened yet, I will exercise my will. I will make a difference. I will let tomorrow at least be better than today and yesterday. Now, I'm not saying that with a critical spirit. For many of us, it's a survival mechanism. It's how we cope with the fact that our lives were not architected by us, but maybe our future can be. And in the midst of that human dynamic, we read this text out of James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Listen to what James says. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, 
All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So having read that passage, what do you think James is really talking about here? What's the teaching at its essence in this passage? Do you think that James is saying it's wrong to make professional decisions, to plan and make some choices there? Do you think James is saying that it's wrong to plan for the future or set goals or have ambitions? Do you think that James is saying it's wrong to want to make money or be driven by a profit motive? Now, I think that would be our gut reaction is that's the kind of stuff we hear all the time in church, right? And so that must be what James is talking about. But what's so interesting is that's not really what he's talking about. If you read verse 13 again, you might come to that conclusion because look at what these people that James is addressing, look what they've done. They've decided when they will travel. They've decided where they will go. They've decided how long they will stay there. They've decided what they'll do, and they've decided what their motivation will be, why they'll do it. In other words, just about every facet of their future They have determined by themselves and declared it very openly. And yet James doesn't tackle any of these aspects directly. His problem is not the fact that they plan for the future, but what he addresses is something deeper, more subtle. It's the problem James is having with these folks is not that they have plans for tomorrow, but it's how they formulate those plans, how they hold them in their hearts. It's not wrong to plan for the future. We all do it. That's why we have smartphones with calendars. I mean, you've got to have some concept of what the next day will hold, but it's how we regard the future in our hearts that makes all the difference in the world. And so as J- so James isn't tackling their plans for the future, but he's digging a little deeper. And I want to look with you at some of the things he identifies in their hearts, that makes their posture towards the future spiritually dangerous. The first thing I want to point out is it's foolish to be too absolute about the future and the plans you've laid because we cannot be certain about tomorrow. The problem that James first tackles is the air of certainty with which They talk about their future plans. It's as if because they've declared it, it will most certainly come to pass. It's what um, captures the spirit of the modern age. It's, It's really Nietzsche's will to power, this idea that if it's in here, it can be realized out there because I am man and I can do whatever I set my mind to. That idea, that ethos has so permeated modern culture that most Christians don't realize there is anything, any kind of tension when we say that or feel that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that as Christians, the will to power, this idea that man can determine his own destiny, there's nothing wrong with that. But in fact, God is our helper, our assistant, our source of power to help us declare our future and realize our visions. And I think that's exactly what James is tackling head on. You know, it's the spirit of the modern secular world captured so well in the final lines of that poem, Invictus, which, having heard my brother's sermon, he actually referred to it a couple weeks ago. 
Do you know that famous um, poem, the final lines made famous because they, they so inspired Nelson Mandela. In fact, there was a film about his life called Invictus. And here's how that poem by William Henley ends. It says, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. That so well captures the spirit of our age. And the truth is that both inside and outside the church, that's the mindset that dominates our world and our culture today. So no matter what kind of rhetoric we might speak about the role of God in our lives, practically speaking, day to day in our psyche, in the enclosed interior of our minds, we are working furiously to protect ourselves and to bless ourselves and to provide for ourselves. And we are often saying those very things in our spirit. I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my own soul. Now, remember, James, when he writes these words, is speaking in hyperbole which, if you didn't like English class, is exaggeration. He's saying too much. He's, he's not really saying literally we cannot know anything about tomorrow. For example, I know tomorrow's my day off. I know I ain't coming to work tomorrow. I decided that I'm going to stay home, and tomorrow when I wake up, that is what I fully intend to do. Now, something might come up. If one of you has a serious need, I'm going to come to work, and I'm going to be there with you and for you. But right now the plan is tomorrow's my day off, and I have a pretty reasonable expectation that that's going to come to pass. So it can't literally mean there's nothing I can know and nothing I can do about tomorrow. That's actually not true at all. There is a great deal we can do as human beings to control our immediate locality. We do have more power over our lives and our future than we might think. If I study hard, I'm going to get better grades in school. If I practice a lot, I'm going to get better at a musical instrument or at karate or whatever else I'm trying to get good at. I can make appointments, and generally I can keep them. I can set plans, and very often those plans will be realized. In fact, in two weeks, I'm going to be traveling with some friends to a very remote place, and we're going to fish and camp and canoe, and that's that's really taken over a lot of my mind lately, preparing because I don't want to die out there and I don't have any gear, so I'm like trying really hard to get enough stuff not to die out in the wilderness. I think my friend is going to keep me alive, but I'm planning and planning and planning, and it's very likely that this trip will happen. So what is James saying? Because I can actually know so much about tomorrow, and I can control so much about tomorrow. I can speak with a measure of confidence about what the future will hold for me. But what James is really getting at is not that immediate local power that we have, that power with a, a small lowercase p, but he's saying every one of us, though we have great potential, great power, will come face to face with our limitations. And one of the things that is produced by the Christian faith is a very sober and healthy kind of humility that says, I will not belittle what God has given me the ability to do, but I will not overblow the boundaries of my potential. I will not say that I am limitless, that I'm free to do whatever I can as far as I can take it, that I set my own limits, because the truth is, I do not set my own limits, nor do you. 
We are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of our own soul. And we certainly are not infinite and all-powerful. There is so much we can control, but there is so much more we cannot control. I was just writing, doodling a list of things that can have a devastating effect on my life over which I have almost no control. On that list were things like disease, accidents, wars, crime committed against me, forces of nature. Think about how many people woke up one day and died victims of the weather. The weather gets you. Who do you get mad at? The wind blew and it killed me. Dang it. How do you get mad at the wind? And yet that's, the, that's what it is to be human. Even the weather can kill us. And as I think about how many things I cannot control, you cannot control, it's a sobering realization that our power with a lowercase p creates the illusion that I am, in fact, the master of my own fate and the captain of my own soul. I can protect my family. I can protect myself. I can put a hedge of sandbags financially all around us to make sure nothing will touch us. And yet that's an illusion because the truth is there's so much you cannot control that will touch your life very powerfully. I believe that when we're far from God, that helplessness, rather than driving us in dependence towards God, drives us away from him and leads us to fuel this illusion that I can protect myself. See, when I think about disease and war and crime and car accidents, every time my wife is sleeping and she's doing a long drive like she's going to do later today, I get so stressed out because this woman, even with coffee in her system and a full night's sleep, falls asleep every time she drives. And it's the epitome of helplessness thinking about the fact that she's out there on the road catching a good nap at 50 miles an hour, and I can't do anything. And I just realized... This is what God does to us. He shows us there is so much you cannot control. And therefore, what? Come to me. Let me protect you. Admit your frailty, your limitations, because I don't share them. I am more powerful than you. I am unbounded, limitless compared to you. And the things you cannot control, I can control. Those scary things which can ravage us apart from our control are meant to drive us towards God in utter humble dependence. But if you're far from God, those very things will push you even further away into this self-made illusion that I control my own future. And that's precisely what James is addressing. So the first teaching on the future is this. Yes, set plans, but never Forget your limitations. Let the things you cannot control drive you in a fresh way to remember that God is the one we are utterly dependent on for those things which really terrify us in the quiet of the night. The second thing that James points out that is flawed in the way that they plan and boast about the future is that they forget that our earthly lives are actually very, very short. It's interesting. The, the last time I preached on this text at Harvest was in June of the year 2000. 
And that was the day before, it was June 25th, it was the day before my dad's 60th birthday. And I remember commenting during that sermon, I can't believe my dad's turning 60. I still remember that day that he turned 40 with such clarity. It was so vivid in my mind. It still is. I remember my dad's 40th birthday in our little two-bedroom apartment in Waukegan. A, a ghetto banner hung over the, the little soffit above the kitchen. And just, I remember it so clearly. And I was saying, I can't believe 20 years have already passed and he's turning 60. Then I looked at the calendar because in my mind, I had just preached that sermon at Harvest. That was almost 15 years ago. Next summer, we're going to celebrate my dad's 75th birthday. That's freaking me out, guys. I, I just cannot believe how fast. And you know the unfairness of it is when you're young, the tape seems to be going so slow. You're like, oh, when will summer come? I hate school. And then you hit 30, and you're like, slow down. I want to stretch out this day. I want it to last a little longer. Why am I already 60? And you just, you get terrified because as you get older, while your heart does get deeper, time seems to go faster. And it is the old who know what the young cannot. That really this long, long life, this old age is not so old and is not so long. If you're paying attention, if you're awake, it happens to you in literally the blink of an eye. And you look at your cute little baby, and they're gross, and they're popping zits, and they're going to college. And you're like, what happened? What happened to my little baby? I think that's why we baby the youngest one, not because we care about how they develop, but because they are our last fountain of youth. Don't grow up, because looking at you and treating you like you're still in diapers makes me feel young. It's so selfish. We're such evil people. But that's what parents do. They baby the youngest one for their own longevity. James says very plainly, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then you're gone. I've told you this before, but George Carlin, the famous atheist comedian, requested that on his headstone it be written, he was here just a minute ago. <laughs> I love that headstone. I want to steal and put it on mine. Like, that's this perfect statement about life. He was here just a minute ago. And now, he's gone forever. That's life. Though he didn't worship Jesus, I think at least he understood that much about reality. So life is short. If you've ever gone jogging in early morning and seen a field shrouded in mist, and as you jog back home 30 minutes later past the same field, that fog is gone, isn't it? As the sun begins to rise, you can't tell it's the same field. And that's the way your life will feel. We've all heard the sad news about the downing of the second Malaysian Airlines flight, Flight 17. And some of you have already seen the story on the Internet that one of the passengers, a Dutchman named Kor Pan took a picture from the terminal window as he was getting ready to board because, you know, just a, a few months earlier, MH370 had disappeared. And he took a picture and said, in case it goes missing, this is what it looks like. And it was kind of tongue-in-cheek humor, and he posted it to Facebook before he boarded. 
And all his friends chimed in on Facebook and said, that's funny, good one, until they realized he might be on the flight that just went down. And then the realization turned to horror how eerily prophetic this little picture and this caption had been. In case he goes missing, this is what it looks like. And I think it's a good illustration of the unpredictable and fragile nature of our time here on earth. I, I've flown so many, you guys have flown more than me, many of you, but I've flown at least a half million miles in my life. And getting on planes is like, I don't, oh, wake me up when it's over. I don't even, I used to be so excited about flying. Now I don't even think about it. I'm like in robot mode. It's just another chair to sit in for a few hours. And it rarely strikes me that this might be the last time I set foot on the earth alive. Every flight you step on could be the last one. And we say it, but for some people, it's actually the case. You just don't know. And that's why what James is saying is when you talk about the future, yes, you have a safe assumption that maybe tomorrow will come, but you have no guarantees at all. You don't know. You can't force tomorrow to come for you. I want it to come real bad. I want to stay alive until I see my children get older, fall in love, get married, make a million dollars and support me in my retirement because I have no retirement plan whatsoever. I want all that, but the honest truth is I have no idea what year my gravestone will say on the other side of the hyphen. I don't know, and neither do you. And it could be cut very short, but even if God grants us a full human lifespan, anywhere from 70 to 100 years, even if he grants you that, at the end of it, it will have seemed very short. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be full. It'll be full, but it will seem too short. I think James's point in part is this. Life is too precious and too short to squander it by approaching it the wrong way. You don't have that many years to figure out what the value of this earthly life is, brief as it is. Let me ask you a question, because we live near a big mall, one of the biggest malls in America, Woodfield Shopping Center. If you won a one-hour shopping spree where everything you physically touched in one hour would be yours... Now, somebody, I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. You're going to sit there, oh, gosh. What store would I go? I'd be at the Apple store in, in my spandex just stretching out. You know? But would any of you stand in line for 30 minutes at Auntie Anne's to get a pretzel? <laughs> would you? I mean, on a normal day, yes. I love me some pretzels, the almond ones with that. Mm. Now I lost the other half. <laughs> shopping or pretzels. All right, so listen, here's how it is. If you won that one-hour shopping spree, that finiteness, the limitation of those 60 minutes, which normally seems so long at the dentist, will seem so short in the shopping spree. How you use it is informed by the fact that you fully recognize how short a time it is and how precious every minute of that hour is going to be, and you won't waste any of it. I think that's what James is trying to do to us. He's saying, look, 
I know you think that what you're living for seems so important and so desirable right now, but what would happen if a little later in the, the halfway mark of this very short life, I could have had a V8. My God, I'm winning a game that's not even worth playing. I'm doing it all wrong. What will you do if you have that midlife realization? And so James is trying to spare us from that and saying, life will be over in the blink of an eye. You cannot afford to squander it getting things wrong. You cannot talk about the future like you can control how many tomorrows you have. Or that you won't regret it tomorrow if you got today and yesterday all wrong. You will regret it to the depths of your being. When you wake up and finally see what a gift this life was. How important it was to be alive. It will affect you very deeply if you've gotten it wrong. There's no human being who can be neutral on the day of that dawning. And so I think that the warning of James is simply, life is so short, use it in a way that's meaningful. Let me give you the last point, which I think is perhaps the most important one. Is that when we regard the future, it's critical we remember that we're supposed to live by God's will and not by our own. See, I don't think this is really a passage about a relationship with the future. I think it's really a, a passage about a relationship with God. Because very few things reveal the true nature of our view of God as our approach to the future. The way you approach your future and the plans you have for yourself are one of the clearest re revelations of where God really fits into your life. You know, we say Jesus is Savior, but we also say that he is Lord. I think nowhere is lordship more clearly seen than in the way that we set our plans for the future. And so James says, in case we haven't been paying attention, instead of all this stuff about how you're going to go here and do this and make that, we should say instead, if it is the Lord's will, we will. He doesn't negate the role of planning. He says planning's fine, but make sure that your plans and God's plans align. Now, let me un unpack for you just a little bit exactly what that means, because it's very easy to get that wrong as well. The Puritans had a saying that they loved. The saying was Dio Volente. I know it sounds like an Italian guy's name. It's Latin for God willing. Dio Volente. And they would put the initials DV after certain appointments in their calendar or when they send out an invitation. We will be having a picnic luncheon tomorrow, DV. And the DV stood for God willing, meaning it's our, it's our plan to have it. But it's only up to God whether we actually have it or not. Now, they really meant it. The Puritans were called Puritans for a reason. They were very thoughtful about their faith. They were purists about things. And when they put DV, they put it down there soberly, thinking about it. But shortly after the Puritans, the Methodists, and then the rest of the Christian world caught on to that. And people started signing DV after their, after their signatures. Like, uh, I miss you, Dave Lee, DV. What does that even mean? 
And I think it's become the habit of some in the modern era to say the words, Lord willing, in such a trite and casual way. You know, uh, next week we're going to go to New York, Lord willing. And we say it. You know what it feels like to me sometimes when people say it? It's like Lord willing is the same as knock on wood. We're going we're gonna to go to New York tomorrow, Lord willing. Oh, Lord, please let us go to New York tomorrow. Don't screw up our flight. Don't let there be an airline strike. Lord willing means knock on wood, doesn't it? It's just another way of saying, I hope, not I yield. I submit myself. Let me put it another way. I think the most glaring sin in the church today is that we don't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. We speak of it very often. We claim it quite a bit. But in practice, I think the state of the church, not our church alone, the church in America would reveal that we're not really submitted as much as we might say to the true lordship of Jesus Christ. I think it's easy to presume that the life we're living is in alignment with God's will because we're not doing glaringly sinful things. I'm not kicking children when no one's looking. I'm not stealing money. I'm not having affairs. I'm actually a pretty decent, upstanding citizen. I'm even careful about the taxes I pay. I recycle. I help old ladies cross the street. I mean, I, like, I'm a good Cub Scout. I was a Cub Scout. I grew up to be a good Cub Scout. So as citizens go, I'm okay. Right? And I'm not boasting, I'm just saying, that's one of the ways I, I try to figure out, am I in God's will? Well, I'm not an evil person, so that's part, at least 50%. I get a C- minus so far. And then I do a lot of good stuff for God. I, I am definitely serving, volunteering, I'm giving. So that's another, maybe I'm up to about a B- minus now. And then I look at my life and I'm like, wow, good things are happening around me. I'm healthy, my children are happy, my wife loves me, I make a decent living. My dog's kind of cute. And so we think, all right, good. I'm at at least an A minus, little margin for error, who knows. And the way we figure out, am I in God's will, is that way, isn't it? Am I doing anything glaringly evil, knowingly evil? No, check. Am I doing some good stuff for the Lord? Yeah, check. Do I have the, am I enjoying the favor of God? Am I making money? Am I enjoying good health? Am I losing weight? Am I, whatever it is you're after, if it's happening, check. And we look at it, and I'm being a little sarcastic because I think I do it too, man. And this is how we figure out, is my life, such as I'm living it, in alignment with the will of God? And what James says is, well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. He's not saying, no, 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 you're totally off. He's saying maybe because there's a big, big, big difference between God, is this okay with you? And God, what do you want from me? See, ultimately, what James is talking about is the the struggle for lordship, that wrestling match like Jacob had with God at Peniel. Striving with, contending with God, saying, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to try to get something out of you. I want to know. And he's wrestling, wrestling. That's what we do. Am I going to be the master of my fate? Will somebody else do it for me? And there are words that seem to suggest that God has dominion over us. But let me ask you, because you're the only one who can really judge for yourself. Is the life you're living today and the choices you're making, the habits you have, 
the very public and visible way you are ordering your life. I mean, let's, let's, let's put it this way. The one thing Facebook did for us is made public how we live. And some of us look and go, I wish my life was as cool as their life. What did we do yesterday? Nothing. They went to the water park. What are we going to do tomorrow? Nothing. They're going fishing. And, you know, we, we, at least Facebook has made very visible and public, this is how we live. But I'm asking you as you look at your own life, is the life you're living and the choices you're making and the attitudes you're holding deep inside, are they the product of the will of God over you? Sometimes we give God a multiple choice quiz with the two or three options we can live with. (laughs) All right, so God, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pray about it. Can I get the Maserati or the Porsche? And don't feel judged if you have one of those fine cars. I wish I could drive it. But I'm saying we give him that, saying, like, here are the two choices I could live with. Right? There's a difference when we say, God... What do you want me to drive? He might say a Bentley. I don't know what he's going to say. But do you see, it's not what you get in the end that's the, the critical issue. It's how you get there. It's how you figure out, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to go tomorrow? Where am I going to live? How long will I stay there? When will I live? What will I do? And for what motive will I be driven? Those are all things we're answering every day. But my question, I think James's question, God's question is, how do you get there? Do you get there by saying, here are the things I can deal with, I can accept, I can stomach this, I am going to try to be the captain of my own soul, but I'm going to ask God if he's okay with what I've decided. In other words, God is a sort of laissez-faire corporate executive, and I'm the middle manager who's getting away with murder. I'm like, you know, way out here in Topeka, we can get away with whatever we are. Corporate doesn't even know we exist. So I'm the king of this little roost. That's the way we sometimes live, isn't it? We send a little anonymous memo up to heaven. Uh, I'm about to, you know, do this. Is that okay with you? Didn't hear a no. <laughs> I'm going to go for it. And that's the way we, we roll the dice so often. We presume that we set a course, and because God hasn't brought utter destruction, he's cool with it. But do we have the faith and the courage to sit before him and say, all right, blank slate, here's my future. You own me. I belong to you. You purchased me. What should my life be? What would you have of me if I didn't give you six or seven choices, but I gave you my life? I gave you an open invitation to tell me what my future will be about. Do you understand that difference? between saying, I'm going to decide something and hope that it's the Lord's will, and saying, if he is Lord, I kneel before him and ask, what is it you want my life to be about? You'd be amazed what a massive difference is made between those two approaches. So remember that those final lines from Invictus that I've been referring to so often, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. Those are powerful words. They inspired Nelson Mandela. This idea that Nietzsche gave us of the will to power is actually a very potent thing. 
It's remarkable what the human spirit by itself can accomplish. But even the most remarkable and strong human spirit will come face to face one day with the absolute undeniable truth that we don't know everything. We can't control everything. We cannot even add a single day to the length of our lives. Every one of us will come to the edge of that great mystery beyond the veil of this earthly life. And for those who have been the master of their own fate and the captain of their own soul, and they come to the edge, the threshold of this life, they finally bend their knees and say, I have no idea what's on the other side. I think James's question and God's question is, who will carry you over that threshold? Where, O captain, O master, will you take yourself now? Where? So fast-forwarding to that day, James says, wouldn't it be better if instead of waking up at the end, we woke up in the middle? I have a friend, I won't out him, but he falls asleep at the beginning of every movie he goes to. And he went to the movie, but he has no idea what happens because he gets a good nap. How much richer could his experience possibly be if he stayed awake for the actual show? I don't think God wants us to wake up at the end. But he's inviting you to wake up now. That's why those final words of this passage in verse 17 are so important. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I'm charging you in the authority of Jesus Christ not to blow this sermon off. Not because I wrote it, not because I said it, but because I think this is heavy on the heart of God for our church. And can I just suggest to you as we close here, maybe some of you came to church this morning in a spiritual slump. I'm feeling that very much about our church in these days. It's not true of everybody, but it's true of a great many of us that we're going through a bit of a, eh, you know, you know the, the, the word I see popping up all the time in, in social media? Meh. That's a word that didn't exist when I was growing up. M-E-H. What does that word mean? <laughs> Whatever. It's the ultimate word of apathy. Do you like that restaurant? Meh. And some of us, if we're honest, that's where we are spiritually right now, isn't it? Do you love your Jesus? <laughs> we couldn't even bring ourselves to say... Yes, I love my Jesus, because that would be a lie today. You are not feeling like shouting that at all. What you would have shouted if your honest was, meh. Now, let me ask you how you ended up there. It could have been through a number of ways, but one possible way you could have ended up there is that the way you've been relating to God has diminished who he is. And you have managed and controlled and marginalized God to the point that it is so safe to ignore him in your life. And while that's given you a great measure of freedom and, and guiltlessness, a soaring conscience, if you will, the other effect is that it's made God boring, toothless, almost useless to have in my life. 
If God can be so easily pushed to the sides, then this whole faith is really kind of dull. And for a lot of people who are going through a spiritual period of dryness, I'm going to challenge you. That's the way you may have gotten there. Is that you have pulled the teeth from God, as it were. You can't really do it, but in your life, you have so ignored him that now he's ignorable. I believe that the key to revival is not in how we feel again, but in a renewal of the way that we relate to Jesus Christ. The start of all revival is not a great meeting that makes you feel good. It is to bend your knees before the King of Kings and acknowledge who he is. And stop wanting all the benefits of being a Christian while pushing to the side the Christ who gives us life. So I'm going to ask you that final question again. This life you're living today, the choices you've made, the attitudes you harbor, are these things the product of the will of God? Let's pray. You know, as I was preparing all week for this message, especially this conclusion, this last challenge, it occurred to me very sharply that maybe the people most vulnerable here are the pastors in this church. Because, man, for us, it's like presumed we're on the right track. Our lives are certainly must be aligned with God's will. And I just went through this period this week where I realized I don't know that that's true necessarily of me. I don't want to be that person who makes up my own mind and then asks God to approve it. I want to know that this worthy God is the one who drives my life. So I want to invite you along with me to just sit still before God and take a moment to say, God, is if there's anything you want to show me or say to me, I want to listen. I actually want to be right there in the middle of your will. I want to know that peace will come in that place. Finally, real peace. So can we pause for a minute and let's just say that to the Lord and listen for a while. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.